We believe that the court was meant to enable democracy. And in so many ways, their view of the world seems to treat the court as not just a check on democracy, but a way of crippling it and limiting popular expression. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Rakeem Brooks. He's currently the president of the Alliance for Justice. The Alliance for Justice is a national association of progressive organizations that advocates for a fair and independent justice system. It was founded by Nan Aaron in 1979 to counter the far right's efforts to undo progressive gains in the courts. In September 2021, Rakim took over leadership of the organization, moving from his role as campaign manager for the ACLU's Systemic Equality Campaign. I really enjoyed hearing Rakim's leadership story and the preparation he brings to his current work and what his aims are for the Alliance of Justice going forward. He's one of my best guests. Please listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Rakim at the Alliance for Justice. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Rakim, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, happy to. My name is Rakim Brooks. I'm the president of the Alliance for Justice, originally a native of East Harlem. I now live in Washington, D.C., where we work to build power among progressive nonprofits to try and transform state and federal courts and move them in a more progressive direction, and all of that with the goal of securing justice for all. It's hard to argue with that. <laughs> Tell me about that growing up in East Harlem. What was that like? Sure. I grew up with my mom and grandmother to begin with. We lived in a two-bedroom apartment in what we call the projects, public housing, Wagner Public Houses, which if you are in New York, what I always say is if you ever watch Carlito's Way or The Godfather along Pleasant Avenue, we were just at the top of Pleasant Avenue. Sort of That's where Wagner starts and it's named after Senator Robert F. Wagner. It's a huge number of buildings. It's a huge complex, about 16 buildings, 5,000 folks, and very impoverished. Things are always breaking. Things are never fixed. <laughs> but a lot of really loving and thoughtful people living under very tough, tough circumstances. But my mom and I lived there till I was six. Then she got an apartment in the Bronx happened to be the case that the schools that I went to, which were some of the, they call them talented and gifted schools you had to test in, were in East Harlem and nearby. So I stayed with my grandmother and lived there until I was 18 and went off to college. Obviously that shapes you. It sounds like you were 
like, you know, in, in schools that were separating you out for your talents and so on, did you have a lot of temptations that sometimes exist in that kind of neighborhood? Did you stay on the straight and narrow? Yeah, I was, I was pretty much on the straight and narrow. I was singled out in one sense, but not in, in the traditional sense, or at least what we imagine, because it was Harlem and it was the 90s. Though there were several talented and gifted schools throughout the city, and though today the school that I went to is very, very racially diverse, when I was there, it was black and Hispanic kids, mostly Puerto Rican kids, though a few Mexican-Americans, some Dominicans. We knew that was because white families didn't really come above 96th Street, even when I was in the sixth grade, which would have been in the late 1990s, early 2000s. I was going to a program at Stuyvesant High School, which is another specialized school, but to prepare me for the specialized high school exam for working class kids in particular. I would go all the way downtown. And when you were coming uptown, reliably, if you wanted a seat on the train, you just stood over any random white person because it was guaranteed they were getting off by 86th Street or 96th Street. New York and Harlem are very different today. But so we were singled out, but we never had any association with the fact that our racial identity was somehow disconnected from our intellect, that we were somehow exceptional relative to our peers because everybody in the school was black and Hispanic. So all we knew was that we were performing at a better rate than some of the other kids in our school. And I only raised that because I've since gone back to the school and do notice that many of the kids there in a much more integrated environment experience stereotype threat that I never did. You know, I never looked at a white person or an Asian person and thought that by virtue of their skin color, ethnicity, that they were going to be more intelligent than I was or that that I was required to act differently than them or any of the other things that we now confront in public education. It was distinctive in that way. We happened upon something very rare and special. I now recognize that gave us the education that we required and allowed us to be um, who we were, regardless of our race. And you must have been doing well. You went off to Brown. What was that transition like for you? Yeah, I did well. Well-ish. So as I said, I went to Stuyvesant High School. Um, it was a program called the Math Science Institute that prepared working class kids for the specialized high school exam because most of us couldn't afford test prep. From my junior high school, the one I was just describing, which was an elementary to junior high school, six of us ended up going to Bronx Science, if I remember correctly. Quite a large number from any one public school, particularly in Harlem. Six of us end up going to Bronx Science. We get there and probably were unprepared in a certain sense. We were clearly prepared because we had taken this exam like everybody else and so could do the work. We were unprepared in the sense that there was a kind of rigor and expectation that had not necessarily been true. But I remember just being overwhelmed by the scale of, of work at that high school. You were a, a lumberjack for education, just constantly trying to imbibe more. But the school had a very proud legacy and reputation. Today still, I think it has the greatest number of Nobel Prize winners of any high school in the country. And they always were sure to tell us that. You very much felt like you were a part of something. I did okay at Bronx Science. I never claimed that I was a straight A student. I wasn't. I was a an A and everything else student. Anyway, I, I bring all that up because when I got to Brown, Brown was a special place for a number of reasons. Again, I've been very fortunate in my education. One was it had what was called the new curriculum, still does, 
which meant that you could take everything past fail if you wanted to. Almost no one availed themselves of that, probably except for me in the first two years, <laughs> because I just didn't know that you really weren't supposed to use it that way. But I found that so freeing. It meant I could try anything, do anything. But moreover, it's college. So you're focused on what you want to be focused on, not what's assigned to you in a traditional public school. And so I gravitated immediately towards philosophy and history and black studies I'd gone in thinking I was going to be an applied math major because I come from Bronx science and I'd done really well in mathematics and I loved math, but I just had never been exposed to many of these other subjects at any great depth. Bronx science was still a public school. It still had a very sort of like rigid traditional humanities and social science curriculum, like all textbooks, like we didn't read any books. So suddenly I'm reading far and wide and I'm just alive. My mind is excited and I'm lit up. And the, the third and probably most important and compelling piece was that Ruth Simmons was the president, the first black woman to lead an Ivy League institution. And she was, is extraordinary. Dr. Simmons still regarded as one of the premier educators of her generation. It's still at it. I mean, she just retired from Prairie View, which is in Texas, which is where she was, she was born. But she was there. There's a song that came along after Barack Obama was elected, my president is black. I mean, I grew up at a predominantly white institution with a black president. And I think in ways you don't understand, it offered a kind of freedom that I wasn't searching for when I was looking for colleges. Some folks intentionally go to HBCUs because that's something that they're looking for. I didn't really have that on my radar because I was a first generation college student. And so had no real understanding of what the HBCU system was like. And my family's from the South, but a few generations removed and no one was college educated that I knew of, at least. So anyway, those three things all combined to be a sort of really unique combination of things, right? Like there were no grades. I could take whatever I wanted. And there was this magnificent black woman leading the institution and Oh, I should say at the time, they were also studying Brown's historic relationship to the slave trade, which was the first time any major institution had done something like that. It was also the year that Hurricane Katrina had happened. And it was it was almost as though President Simmons understood that something really bad might happen in her tenure. And it created a, an intellectual process by which we would be able to interrogate what had happened afterwards, where so often bad things happen and it feels like we're left in a vacuum all over again, right? Whether it's George Floyd or Tyree Nichols now, it's almost like we have to reinvent the wheel and start talking about that all over again. You know, what does it mean to have race in policing? What's the meaning of race in the United States? Is the 1619 Project a good idea? You kind of have this wheel that you get back on. Whereas at Brown, the wheel was turning. And so when Hurricane Katrina happened, it was like, jump on the wheel and understand exactly what this is about and why it happened in this way. I've said too much, but that, that was sort of my experience at Brown. Now, I, I don't think you said too much because it, it's helping to get an understanding of you and where you come from. I wonder how much that sort of not having a ceiling on where you could go by having a black president and, and things like that. How much does that play into applying to be a Rhodes Scholar and going for things like that, which I noticed you did? That's not everybody who has the confidence to even think that they could qualify. Again, another selective thing for you. Yeah. Well, again, it's a confluence of factors. I was with my mentor, Tony Bogues. He was the head of the Africana Studies Department, now runs the Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice at Brown. 
I'm on the board there, but we were sitting together last summer and I said to him, I could have only been a Rhodes Scholar at Brown. And what do I mean by that? Well, Ruth Simmons was president and all the things I've already described to you were the case. It was also the case that my stepfather, who I did not always have an easy relationship with, has been better as I've gotten older, but in my teenage years, for reasons that all parents, I imagine, can understand and being step parents probably can understand, especially we didn't get along very well. But when I got to Brown, he gave me something that I think he still doesn't know how valuable it was. It was just a piece of advice. His life experiences had been such that he couldn't tell me what to do in college. He didn't know what what was going to be necessary. But he did tell me, ground yourself in something that's reasonably familiar to you so that you always have some place to go back to. It's almost like the safe zone and tag, right? You know, however far you stray, you know what to go back to if in fact things feel un- uncomfortable or and you can't make sense of it. Because I didn't have a lot of money to go back and forth. I mean, we weren't far. We're only three hours from New York City, but <laughs> we did not have a lot of money, right? That $40 bus ticket did not come easily. So what did all that mean? Well, I ended up meeting Tony, who's an extraordinary, extraordinary scholar, but also activist. He had been chief of staff to Michael Manley, the prime minister of Jamaica, before he got his PhD and lived in London and South Africa. And like I said, I thought I was going to be an applied math major. So I come into Brown and he has a freshman seminar called Race, Slavery and Modernity. I don't even know what modernity is, but race and slavery, I've got some idea about. I wanted to know more about myself um, than I had ever learned. I'd come from a very educated household and that my grandmother was still probably the most well-read person I've ever known. She was a bookbinder and alleged that she had read every book she found, probably thousands of books. So, and we had books all over our house, which was also exceptional, unfortunately, in in public housing. But I I know it to be true because, <laughs> as you asked, was I on a straight and narrow? Yes, but I did go inside other people's apartments, and when I probably shouldn't have. So I knew that there were differences. Anyway, I take this class with Tony. My mind is totally blown because. He gave me what I used to, I still call a heretical classical education, which means he made us read everything that was part of the canon and then made us read the critiques of those things. So central text in that might be Shakespeare as a Tempest, which is simultaneously Shakespeare and the canon and simultaneously about a slave Caliban who's trying to figure out how it is that he uses the language of his masters in order to either free himself or be in conflict with himself. And it's about Caribbean slavery. It's set on an island that's about to be consumed by a tempest. So that was sort of what Tony did throughout the course. We'd read Thomas Jefferson's Notes on the State of Virginia. We'd read Frederick Douglass or the Dred Scott case or something like that. So we were always contrasting two opposing views um, and trying to understand what their synthesis was, what their conflicts were, et cetera. And like I said, my mind just sort of came alive. So I ended up, right, I'm still thinking about math because I'm good at math and that's a very traditional subject, but I'm drawn towards becoming a, a black studies major. Now, I think if I had been in any other university, I would have felt ghettoized because I had done that. But Ruth Simmons was there. And so she was pouring so much into what would become the Center for Slavery and Justice at that time. It was the Committee on the Brown Study Relationship to the Slave Trade. She was pouring so much into the Africana Studies Department, which was growing, and there were so many different interesting scholars who were coming there. What am I building up to? So here I am. I found this place that anchors me. 
by my junior year, I kind of think, and I've kind of been persuaded, though I've taken a bunch of courses in Africana studies and really felt like I was growing and learning at a rapid pace, becoming a stronger, better writer. I'm taking spatterings of classes outside of the department, but I'm really there. So junior year, I say, in a kind of another rebellious spree, right? Like, okay, I've, I've got enough of that. Let me go see, let me test my mettle against the rest of the university because I'm being told, right, when I talk to other folks, including other black students, right? Like, why would you do that? <laughs> what are you going to do with that? So I go and I take a class in the history of theory of international relations with James Dardarian. He's at the time the managing director, I believe, of the Watson Institute, which is Brown's International Relations Group. Amazing, amazing class where I get introduced to a scholar named Headley Bull, who's taught at Oxford and who James had studied under. So I go, I take the class um, and we have our first exam. It's about 125 students in the class. It was really well subscribed across the university, 125 students. We take the first exam and James, God bless him, was the kind of instructor who met with every student um, after the first exam to assess how you had done and give you some tips, et cetera. Really, Brown was always called a teaching university. And so you had researchers, but professors who really care. So he brings me into his office and he's got this look on his face. And I'm like, oh man, what about, you know, what <laughs> and he sort of says, I just expected, you know, Mr. Brooks, from your comments in the class that you would have done much better. And I'm thinking, all right, well, you know, it's not the first time I've dealt with adversity in a class. I'll figure out how I'm going to deal with this. And he says, I gave you an A plus or an A plus plus, but you know, I thought you would have gotten like another plus or something like that. He was like, but you got the highest score in the class. He was kind of teasing you. Yeah, he was teasing me. He was totally yeah. pulling my leg. He was like, you got the highest score in the class. And at that moment, I thought, okay, I don't know why it took that class as opposed to the classes I take in the Black Studies Department, but I think I... It was almost like I needed a proof point. I knew what I was learning was meaningful and that I was being trained in all of the core skills that you need with regard to the, the humanities and the social sciences teach you. But it was like I needed this other validating thing that was blindly graded. That was the other important piece, right? Blindly graded across 125 students. And once I did that, I was like, oh, OK, you know, I was off to the races and nothing, nothing could stop me. So that when it came time to apply for the Rose Scholarship, I was encouraged to do so by the university. But most importantly, I had something in mind that my grandmother used to say to me. She was deeply, you know, another word I learned in college, deeply egalitarian. She really just believed that people were equal. And her version of equality meant that you're not better than anybody, right? So first, the humility in yourself to recognize how you stand alongside others. But that also means nobody's better than you. And though my classes and my experiences have suggested to me, whatever else is going on at this university, I don't know what other people's grades are. It's probably the case that mine are as good as anybody's here. And so I applied and I was fortunate enough to um, win. I was the only person who won that year from Brown. How was it going to Oxford and having that Rhodes experience? Incredible. You've gotten the, the sense of the story so far. I don't think I'd ever left the country. I'm trying to remember if we, we may have gone to a family vacation to the Caribbean, but I can't remember what year that happened, if it was right after I started Oxford or right before. But that was it, a resort somewhere. So I'd never really seen the world. I was intimidated by it in that 
I was ignorant of a bunch of things, you know, so I knew what the Sistine Chapel was, but, you know, I just never been there. I mean, you know, I just had that kind of distance. The most important moment of my time overseas was, and I'll get back to Oxford, was, was actually when I visited the Sistine Chapel because I look up and I see, you know, Michelangelo's creation. And my grandmother had had a print of, of it in our home and I'm a bust of David. And I just started to cry because it made all of her efforts make sense to me. What she always tried to do was show that though we lived in this small two bedroom project apartment sort of shoved aside the island of Manhattan to the upper northeast corner, right under a bridge, basically, that humanity was connected, that these these folks, the excellence of various cultures and generations were ours as much as anybody else's. And so that all came together for me. But to your point, here I am at this um, institution that is older than my country, and I'm having to reconcile that. Like, what does that mean for a school to have educated people before anyone even thought about the United States of America. So, you know, you're making sense of Europe and what that is, which I think is a difficult thing for most Americans. We recognize what Europe is today, but <laughs> to then appreciate it at its height, you see these things. I can't remember who said it, someone from the Renaissance, but said that um, you could attest to the greatness of Rome by its ruins, right? Europe is kind of similar. You sort of view it and you think, this was something. <laughs> it's still fun. You know, it's nice to visit. But at some point you stare at this and you think like, this was something. This was the heart of the empire for quite a long time. And then you go to Paris and you feel the same. You go, go to Germany or Austria and you start to try to make sense of more modern events usually. But if, if you're a nerd like me, you think about like, oh, Bismarck was here and like he had ideas about what this is. So, so for someone interested in politics and political theory, and statecraft being so important, that's what you start to imagine, right? Geography is just um, maybe even the smallest part of it, you know, what they call like the imagined community. I mean, it's so much more than that. This this place was able to hold something much bigger than its physical expanse would seem to suggest. So I was always kind of overwhelmed by that. I mean, it, you know, you could be overwhelmed by school, but I really, that I thought I had, I could read the books, I could write the papers. I was overwhelmed by the experience of the world. Uh, and especially a place like Oxford, where suddenly you're meeting folks truly from all over the world. I mean, it is the most global university because it's the heart of the empires, right? So you've got all the Commonwealth coming to study there. Yes, people go to Harvard and go to Yale, but it's different. I haven't quite figured out how to explain it yet, except that, again, that notion of a colonial empire that then has several generations of people who were educated by the British, who therefore hold Oxford in a certain regard and attend it, as opposed to people who are highly educated and are in search of the best education and so go to Harvard. It's just a different relationship. But I also have my, my Rhodes classmates who are all remarkable people from all over the U.S. and then all over the all over the world as well. But I was particularly close to the American scholars, as we tend to be. Um, and I, I loved it. It went by too quickly, you know, and, and I now know that the things that were said to me about how quickly it would go by and how much I should cherish it were all true. It's one of those experiences I would do again in a heartbeat. You know, like in a moment's notice, I would go back if they created, I don't know, a fellowship or something for Rhodes Scholars to return to Oxford for a year. Right. And enjoy each other's company. 
Yeah, I can tell you other stories. I'll leave it there. Some people do go back and get a PhD. I know you went on to even more education, but it's kind of very moving to see how well the education system is kind of working for you and you with it to this point. It doesn't for everybody, as, as we both know. What did you do after finishing up Brown and going off to get a couple more degrees? Right. Well, first, when I got back from Oxford, I worked at the think tank Demos. I was the Edwin Baker Fellow for Democratic Values. It was essentially a fellowship that had been set up for young, aspiring public intellectuals. And I, I thought I was smart and I thought that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> what did you think of Demos? I loved it. Yeah. I loved Demos. A small at the time, think tank kind of, right? Small think tank then, big sort of medium size. Now it had a very close connection to labor in particular. And so was talking about working class issues. So I felt right at home. I was um, blogging mostly about poverty and the social safety net, but I was supposed to be writing a book. And for the love of me, I could not decide what to write about. And I realized that it was because pretty early on, I just did not have the ego to be a public intellectual. Like, I'm not fundamentally that interested in what I think about things. I learned then, and I know it more even now, sort of post-business school, I'm totally a team player. I love working on teams. I love collaboration. And I probably could have written a book with someone else, you know? Uh, and, and now I understand actually having talked to people who, wrote, who write books that all books are actually written with other people, you know? <laughs> so in some ways, I just didn't understand the process. But a co-authored book would have worked well for me. But anyway, I, I learned very quickly that I wasn't that interested in my own ideas. It's not that I didn't have them. It's not that I didn't believe in what I thought, but long expository writing. Now, this sounds so weird because I've written theses and other things, right? But I just, I didn't want to spend my time that way. So I was blogging. I ended up having a radio show called The People with Raheem Brooks. Another thing I wish I continued doing. I loved that. I love public affairs and bringing people together to have a conversation so just tell me a little bit more about that. I'm fascinated by that. How did that start and what kind of things did it do? Yeah, it was with WBAI, you know, public radio, Pacifica Radio. And we went there one day to meet Tony Bates, who was running the station at the time. A lot of Tonys in my life, I'm realizing. Tony Bates was running the station at the time uh, in downtown Manhattan. And we just had this idea that we wanted to use some of what Demos's research was to go ahead and launch a series of conversations. And he said, well, you know, okay, I got a slot for you, you know, try it out and let's see how it goes. And I can't even remember what the first episode was about. The unfortunate thing about this whole time is I don't think that we kept anything because they went into Pacifica's records and they sort of purged them periodically because it's public radio. And I didn't know that at the time. I have an old laptop that maybe has some of the recordings, but they weren't the edited recordings. Um, anyway, we interviewed all sorts of folks. Jamel Bowie was on it. I remember that because at the time, like now he's a big deal, but at the time he was at the American Prospect and we had a good conversation. Um, I interviewed um, a woman named Melissa Boteach, I think is her last name. She was at the Center for American Progress at the time working on poverty. I saw her the other night because she was at the National Partnership for Women and Families. They were doing the celebration over the Family Medical Leave Act. So it was wide ranging. It was, it was a good time. And like you, as you introduced this conversation, 
for me, there were no gotcha questions. It was always just a hard question, you know, and take your time. Tell me what you think about it. Let's let's talk it through. Let's have an honest dialogue about things. I just enjoyed it immensely. That was the coolest thing I was doing. I got pulled away from it because a now mentor of mine and friend of mine, Clyde Williams, was running for Congress in Harlem. And he asked me to be his campaign manager. I worked for the future speaker of the city council at that time. She was representing East Harlem, Melissa Mark Viverito. And so I knew something about the district and knew something about his politics. Not very much, candidly. He was relying on my intellect more than my experience to be of aid to him in his quest. And I just thought that was too awesome an opportunity to pass up because I came from a very knowledgeable family, but not a politically active family and always had the sense that things were happening to us, that we weren't really a part of it. And so this was an opportunity for me to get in the mix. And I did. I learned a tremendous amount about why the congressional district was shaped the way that it was, you know, what the various sort of internecine small political battles were and relevant cliques to figuring out how you build a coalition to win. We didn't win because it was almost impossible to build that coalition is what I learned with somebody like Charlie Rangel there, who was, you know, the Dean of the congressional black caucus and, um, an immensely talented politician. I mean, I still don't know that I've ever met a politician more talented than him just on the stump. He was extraordinarily bright, but had that kind of jovial backslapping nature. And usually you see a politician that has one or the other, not both. And he was he was legendary for a reason. Anyway, we lost that, but it pulled me away from the radio show. You can't run a congressional campaign <laughs> and have a radio show. At least I couldn't. So that's how that all came together. How does the JD MBA at Yale fit into that time period? Yeah, it's after. So I, I we end up losing. Clyde and Mona, Mona is his wife, had both worked in the Obama administration. And so I ended up getting a job there at the Treasury Department working on community economic development. And immediately when I got to the Treasury Department, again, another moment of I can do the work, but I'm sort of shocked by the environment. Basically, everybody's going to Yale Law School. I mean, I'm walking around and Neil Wolin, who was the deputy secretary at the time, had gone to Yale Law School. A guy named Sam Valverde, who was very close to the undersecretary, had gone to Yale Law School. So I'm here thinking about economic justice. That's the reason I've gone. And I'm just meeting all these people who all seem to have this common biography. And I meet a friend or someone who became a friend, but she had gone to Yale Law School a few years before. And she says, like, there are two big mafias in government, Yale Law School and Harvard Business School. And I was like, that's interesting. I mean, it's one of these things like, what do I know? People assume by virtue of my pedigree that there are things I just know. But I I never actually checked the other boxes. So I didn't go to Andover. I went to like one of the best public high schools, right? I went to Brown and not Harvard or Yale, which is a great school, but just different in terms of what it produces in our society. You've really been on the slightly lower track. It's embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, this is the point. So everyone says, I know these things, but I walk in and you, you think, okay, that's interesting. Well, what's that about? So I'm there for about a year. And candidly, there's just there's still things that I don't know. I'm, I hadn't had a background in finance. And so I'm learning 
what a basis point is. I've got some sense of what debt and equity are, but not how they relate to each other in a capital stack. I, you know, there's all sorts of stuff I just don't know. So I'm like, all right, my education is not over. I need to go finish this thing. And at the time, again, something I don't advise people who are mentees of mine now, but I just was like, I don't want to be in school in my 30s. That was my thought. I had a great position and I probably should have stayed for longer because the whole second half of the Obama administration, I would have learned a lot more about government and about the Treasury Department in particular. But I was in a rush personally to do what I thought I needed to do. So I go off to Yale, get, get into Yale Law School and Yale Business School. Immediately when I get there, the thing that I want to fight the most for economic justice, I realize has been dashed by the Supreme Court in a 5-4 case called San Antonio School District versus Rodriguez. The basic facts of the case are that parents in San Antonio, that's the Rodriguez side, sue the school district because it's based its funding scheme on property taxes. And so people in the suburbs of San Antonio have more money. And as a consequence, their schools are better funded than people internal to San Antonio. It's a fascinating case because it could have been argued on a race base after Brown and probably had greater success, but the students are mostly Mexican. The weird thing about the history of race and law in the United States, though Mexicans were considered a race, the paradigm wasn't the same. And though they were segregated and subject to segregation, it's just a little off. So in any case, the case ends up being argued as a wealth disparity case. And that had been the trajectory of the court anyway. It looked as though it was going in a direction where it was going to declare disparate treatment on the basis of wealth, also suspect in the same way that we consider race suspect and gender suspect classifications. And it just runs into a runs into a rail in Lewis Powell, who was the former segregationist who Nixon appointed to the court. I remember sitting in con law thinking, okay, what do I do now? <laughs> and if I had had any perspective at all, I would have thought, well, surely when Thurgood Marshall graduated from Howard Law School, like Plessy was on the book. So <laughs> you don't sort of stop because there's a, a precedent in the way. But I don't know, it somehow felt more insurmountable because, and I, I don't know how I thought this, frankly, but you know, it's where your brain is at the time. It felt more insurmountable because the right had built a movement now to control the courts. I mean, it's ever more established today than it was even five, six years ago. But I was like, okay, how do you get around this? How do you do this? And I kind of didn't want to waste time. So then I go to the business school and I'm trying to understand what tools I have there. It turns out I love the people in business school. Here's how I describe law school and business school. I say, you got the Spartans and the Athenians, and everybody always thinks they know who's who. They think that the law students are the Athenians and the business school students are the Spartans. And I'm like, no, it's the other way around. They're like, how can that be? I'm like, well, imagine a child is born and it has some infirmities, right? It's got, I don't know, a lazy eye, right? One arm is shorter than the other, whatever the case may be with the child. The law students are rather like the Spartans. They throw things at it. They shoot arrows at it. And imagine the child is an idea. That's usually the analogy, right? So it's an imperfect idea is the point. The law students throw rocks at it, <laughs> shoot arrows at it, curse at it. 
And if like bloodied and beaten, it stands and grows to be a full, full person, right? They think that's a good idea. That's a good person, you know? So it's like if you watch the 300 where they're doing the training and like they don't let the one monstrous Spartan participate, right? Whereas the business school students are inventive and creative. And so they're like, okay, well, like, let's get him LASIK, right? Like, if you can't see, we need a technology to do that. And if he can't walk, we need a wheelchair or some apparatus to do that, right? And so it becomes the best version of itself equipped with all these other things <laughs> that are added on to it. And so I loved that at the business school, that everything had a solution. I don't know if this is where you are, but it sounds like you kind of feel like these two things complemented each other well. For sure. Yeah. For sure. I thought they did. I don't know that the law students, the law school appreciated how they complemented one another at the time. They do now. They now have a leadership program largely mirroring some of the things that went on at the business school. But again, what I loved about Treasury actually was that the lawyers were mixed in with other folks. So there were the lawyers, the comms people, the policy experts the financial experts, et cetera. And they were all sitting down at a table together trying to solve a problem. That's my sweet spot. So I like the idea. What I realized in my sort of combined degrees was I liked the idea of being the lawyer at the table potentially. And I was good sort of in the appellate space of law and issues kind of thing. But I actually didn't want to be with only other lawyers because they're kind of Spartans. And I didn't really enjoy the personality type. So I did that. Then that's where it all fit in. And then I went and clerked and then had a few odd jobs before getting to this one. Why did you pick the legal road rather than, say, a business road out of that joint degree? I still liked writing. I do too little of it now, but it's a place where I clarify things for myself and lose myself a little bit. So it was the preferred skill set, but I was really good at spreadsheet modeling. I mean, I also find great peace in messing with a spreadsheet, as my staff will now tell you. The finance staff, much to their chagrin, I'm often in the spreadsheets and looking at the formulas and trying to make sure they all line up. So that analytical part of myself is still there. But of the total set of skills that you get in business school, which include the spreadsheet modeling, so sort of structural skills, operational skills, finance skills, it was the organizational behavior pieces that I enjoyed the most. And those were easy-ish to bring along with the law skill set. So if I've done anything well in my last two jobs, it was really looking at what are predominantly legal organizations and trying to figure out how is it that they can be organized to operate not quite like legal organizations, to bring in the intelligences of other professions and not submit them to sort of searing rational scrutiny that belied the fact that many other professions both could survive it if put under some sort of rigorous test, but more importantly, have a kind of experiential nature to them that can't be captured just by rational argument. Law struggles with that sometimes. Over a year at the ACLU, often kind of a pinnacle for people who are interested in the law and the Constitution and things like that in this country. How was that? I Loved, 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 loved the ACLU. I felt like I had totally found my home. Some of it was in, was just the nature of the job. Clerkships are a year long. Then I was in a fellowship and then I was at a law firm. COVID happened and I thought, 
as much as I loved my law firm, and I really did. I loved Sussman Godfrey. I just could not do that work in COVID. Both the demands of the work and just being isolated and sort of staring at a computer, like I lost everything else that made it a fun job. But also then George Floyd happened. The world was sort of spinning on its axes. And I knew that I wasn't going to be a law firm lawyer. So at Sussman, I thought I could become a plaintiff's attorney, right? That was sort of going to be my way, my way to bring the different pieces of myself together. But George Floyd happened and I sort of made peace with the fact that it was going to be time for me to think about something else. And my partner was moving to DC. And so it all made sense. I had to fight for this job at the ACLU because I didn't want to be a lawyer. So they kept saying like, well, you look at my resume and they say like, don't you want to come into the legal division? I was like, you don't understand. I don't want to be a Spartan. And they would look at me and I was like, I was like you don't get it, but I don't want to be a Spartan. <laughs> I would, I'd like to, I'd like to do something different. They had a role as a campaign strategist. I wrote all these memos for my old boss to convince him that I would, I could do this. And finally said like, I think I've got this idea for you. Uh, we've got this new program that's rolling out called systemic equality. It wasn't called that at the time, but eventually became systemic equality. And it's a racial justice meets economic justice kind of agenda. It's the first time the ACLU is going to do something like this. You know, what do you think? And racial wealth gap work is really where my heart is, just given how I grew up. You asked me that earlier about how it informs what I do. Though I'm far removed from it now, and even I'm increasingly emotionally removed from it, I recognize. Like if you're just not in a place, you kind of lose that sense of it. You can lie to yourself and say it's the same, but it's not. It, it changes over time and, and morphs, at least for me, I should say. Anyway, but at, at heart, right, I look back and see myself in those places and ask, how is it that it could have been different? And how could it be different for other folks? And at a, public housing has gotten far worse in New York City. It's not gotten better. They've made some interventions through public-private partnerships, but it is harder to live there now than it was when I was growing up. And I'm sure that's true for every subsequent generation. That's what the old timers would tell me. But now that I've gone back and, and seen it, it, I don't know if you've been to San Francisco and you ever go in or around some of their public housing, which you probably don't even know still exists. But in amidst that sea of wealth, there are these very, very concentrated islands of poverty that have become sites of I don't want to call it social dysfunction because that that sort of plays into certain social science narratives, but really just heartbreaking human realities and tragedy. I fear that for New York over the long term. But in any case, uh, I'm at the ACLU. I get to work on this cool project and I love it because, as I said, it allows me to use the organizational behavioral stuff I know because I'm a lawyer I understand in the ACLU, even though it's got a national political advocacy division, even though it's got people power, you know, communications, high stakes operations, et cetera, it is a legal organization with other stuff. <laughs> Let's put it this way. Something never happened where the ACLU's budget was slashed in half. It would preserve the legal piece of it, right? That's the core. And so you have to understand that about the place and admire that about the place, which I do. I admire as well that in spite of the criticisms that have been levied at it, it maintains its commitment to what is essentially a civil libertarian view of the Constitution. And I would call it a left civil libertarian view. Some people think once you add left, it's no longer civil libertarian. There are plenty of good political theory books about why that's not the case. But in any event, 
which means that it has a certain hold on the American imagination. It captures a part of our cultural current because left or right, people are kind of (laughs) anti-authoritarian. They're anti-government in some sense when it seems to overreach. And that's unique among sort of left-leaning organizations to be able to carve out a path, a three-way through the society where you always can capture five to 10%. It's like how you know, Rand Paul was able to run every time for president. I mean, you always knew like, you're going to be these people with him, <laughs> right? That was the right wing side of it. There's a left wing side of it too, right? And so you've always kind of got these people in conversation with one another and agreeing on enough to potentially be dangerous, I guess. But it's a weird thing, I guess. And I love that about it. I love the people. I always say that the ACLU, by virtue of its reputation, as you say, it gets the number one draft pick every time. So if somebody wants to do really good work, they could go to the ACLU. And so you've got extraordinary colleagues, right, who are just working themselves to the bone to try and achieve something for the society. So all those things made it a great place to work. And it had kind of gotten flush because of the anti-Trump money that was looking for a home, right? A lot of it went there. Yeah. Well, when a bunch of places, they call it the Trump bump. They weren't the only place that got it, but they were certainly one of the main recipients of it. But I'd say many major institutions, the Legal Defense Fund, the Brennan Center, Planned Parenthood, Southern Poverty Law Center, you know, plenty of folks that had large enough reputations to be sites for people's angst, as demonstrated by their willingness to give, really profited from it. I hope those funds won't replicate themselves, or at least we hope they won't, because that probably means we're in another crisis scenario. But they allowed these places to rethink themselves with new resources. And the National Political Advocacy Division was one version of that rethinking. And I'm sure other, uh, that was what I was exposed to. I'm sure many other institutions are thinking similarly, but that's a positive thing. It, It offered a kind of renewal for these institutions. Did you accomplish something in that time there with that program? What do you think? I think so. We got the ACLU into um, the student debt campaign. And there were many other players, thoughtful partners who have been doing the work beforehand. And so I take no credit for the win, which has been the president's current cancellation policy. But I think we helped. And that was not the kind of issue that the ACLU would have gotten involved in prior to my participation. What we did when we pulled the team together was really tried to articulate how when race and the economy intersect, there's given the way capitalism works in our country, there's usually going to be a civil liberties problem because of the way the state plays a role in capitalism in the United States, right? That sort of corporate capture of various lobbying institutions and so forth. And so, of course, you have the redlining conversation. I just raised that because that's the one that most frequently comes to mind with folks. But if you think about it in the banking sector, if you think about it in the student loan sector as well, you'll see it. And so what we had to do was educate our membership and say, this thing that you think about as not being a civil liberties problem, as being an economic problem, is created by virtue of how the government sets up the program. And much like the exclusion of agricultural workers and farm laborers from the Social Security Act, right? Like you could treat the lack of savings and the disproportionate rate of of poverty. It's changed now, but, you know, a generation ago among black workers as somehow a byproduct of a lack of thrift 
right? But once you understand how the policies are set up, you say like, well, they were too poor to save like everybody else. And Social Security brought a bunch of poor white folks out of poverty, but failed to do so for a generation or more actually of, of older black folks by virtue of their exclusion. So you start to weave those narratives and it takes time and you explain this to people. So that what I used to say in shorthand, which is, is a little too quick and fast, but for campaign purposes, it articulated the point. I met a guy who had gone to Berkeley in the 60s and graduated with I'll call it five or ten thousand dollars worth of student loan debt, you know, and even accounting for inflation, that's nowhere near what Berkeley costs today. So I said, when did tuition really start to increase in American colleges and universities? And he didn't really know. And I pointed out that it was basically at the moment that people of color and women in mass entered institutions because there was greater competition over spots. Greater competition means you can bid up prices. There was no student loan system in the early days, et cetera, et cetera. And then we got into a conversation about values as to if education is at the core of the American dream, then what does it mean to tell young Rakeem, you can't go to Brown because you can't afford it, right? You have to go to an institution that's lower ranked. And I don't always believe that means there's an inferior education, but Ruth Simmons also taught me that resources do buy superior <laughs> education. And I've met plenty of people now to know that that can be the case and is more often than not. So we don't live in an ideal world where less equates to more in all circumstances. So why should somebody be shut off from that? And through those conversations, convince folks that it should be part of the agenda and allow the ACLU to become a partner in this larger work to deal with student debt. Like I said, I think the success was, again, due to all the hard work that had come before, I think we were able to help. The Alliance for Justice is one of those institutions which had been founded and run for a long time by one person. I had a conversation recently with Stephanie Shriok, who picked up the leadership of Emily's List after L. Malcolm and, and some of the challenges with the transition there and trying to put your own stamp on something that had taken on a lot of the personality of the person who put it together. What was your experience like? How did they look for a new leader? How did you land that role? What, what was the transition like? Well, I was on the board, actually, uh, when we were looking for a new leader, and I was actually on the search committee. The Dick Cheney method. That, that's what everybody calls it. <laughs> I try not to associate myself with it. But... What ended up happening was we had great people who were interviewing. I was leading this great project at the ACLU and was very happy. And the chair and vice chair asked if I would be considered. And I initially thought, no, I'm very happy where I am. And then I talked to some more people who I trust who said they don't offer roles like this to young black men every day. So you owe it to yourself to think about it and to go through the process at the very least so you know what a major search firm is looking for when they're doing this and how a board considers a candidate. So I didn't think I'd get it. Then I did. And I still wanted to say no. <laughs> and I actually went back to that moment in my first few months in con law. I, here I was working on the racial wealth gap and I felt like we were making progress. We had so many different initiatives. We were working on student debt. We were working on postal banking, which was really about access to banking, working on broadband. I was about to launch an initiative on black farmers, the discrimination they faced from, from the USDA and continue to face um, and all the land that was lost uh, in the 1900s and seized by states. Great civil liberties issue. So I was 
focused. But I kept coming back to the court because I really do feel that until we recognize that just as the Constitution prohibits discrimination on the basis of race and sex, that it should also be viewed as prohibiting discrimination on the basis of wealth classifications or the experience of wealth, that it makes the other things infinitely more difficult to achieve. And a pure case of point is here we were working on this sort of race class initiative. If the Supreme Court in a few months, as I expect it will, rules that affirmative action is unconstitutional and goes further because that will only open the floodgates to the idea that race consciousness in any form in government policy is unconstitutional. Well, what does that do to this whole agenda that I've been describing that I care so much about? If the court strikes these things down, it makes things more more difficult, if not impossible. And so when given the opportunity to really think about how it would be that we would reclaim the courts for the majority of Americans and for the democratic experience that they were supposed to enable, I thought, okay, this is something that I need to do. To the transition pieces, I mean, always, always challenging because, as I always say, Nan ran the institution from when there was one person to when there's 30. And so the back to the org dynamics, the structure is all about the founder, typically. That's to be understood because that person is the driving force behind the institution. I'm on the board of another organization, Getting Out, Staying Out, that had a similar transition from founder to what some people call professional-led. And that's my goal now. At one point, it was Nan Aaron's Alliance for Justice, as well it should have been, because she founded it and she was fundamentally associated with it. When I'm done with it, it shouldn't be Rakeem Brooks's Alliance for Justice. It should just be the Alliance for Justice. And any it has a mission and a vision that is consistent over time that any person can plug into as the new leader, just like the ACLU. Can you tell me a little bit about the internal story of that transition? Was it smooth? Yeah, for the most part, smooth in that Nan walked out one day and I walked in. (laughs) There was a, a staff there ready and willing to help me think about what the organization looked like next. What I often described was that there was a kind of hub and spoke model, um, again, appropriate for for the institution that had existed prior to my arrival, where things flowed in and out of Nan, because again, she was the central nerve system of the organization. When I came in, I couldn't be the central nerve system. I didn't have her experience or her knowledge of where everything was. Mm -hmm. And so I needed an org structure. And I think the org needs an org structure where power was more broadly distributed, decision-making was more broadly distributed, and where there was thoughtful succession planning, right? That if any one person left, it didn't cause the side of the house to fall down, right? I've spent the first 18 months basically doing that, restructuring with that in mind and empowering people and telling people that they're allowed to make decisions without me. I remember this one incident where they had finished a report and they came to me with the report and they said, okay, do you want to read it? And I said, why? And they were shocked. And I was like, well, I'm not the subject matter expert, so I can read it. But what would I offer to the comms department has read it, right? And dealt with style and all the edits and made sure it's consistent with what we do. Yes. I said, okay. And you've got it graphically designed and you like it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Publish it. And I'll read it when the public reads it. There's no reason for me to be a bottleneck in that process. I don't add anything to that particular forum. 
they weren't used to that. And again, for good reason, because Nan could have added something to that process. She was going to be a subject matter expert on that particular issue. I wasn't going to be, or to the extent that I was, it's not as though I'd been so much a part of the process that they would have known early on what needed to be captured from my idea. So it might've been discordant with what they were trying to achieve and thrown the project off. So again, because I believe in teams and the intelligences of teams, I have largely moved our institution to a place where decision-making takes place below me. Uh, and I deal with the consequences of that. And I think that's going to be healthy for us for the long term. For people who don't know what the Alliance for Justice is, what is it? The Alliance for Justice was founded in 1979 to confront then the Reagan administration or leading into the Reagan administration's attempted capture of the courts, which largely has been realized at this point in our history. The left, given its experiences through the Warren Court, viewed the courts as an independent institution, right? one of the three branches of government, insulated from political pressures, and did not fully appreciate, I think, the threat that was posed by this now unified right-wing movement to make the courts in a particular image. And Nan was at the forefront of identifying that threat and trying to rally people to the cause. People get it sort of at the Robert Bork moment, but even then it became about Robert Bork and not about the larger project that would follow his failed nomination. In the midst of that work, the Reagan administration also launched another project, which they called Defund the Left. The idea behind it was that nonprofits were engaged in voter registration and empowering working class and poor communities and communities of color more generally. And so to disable those connections between the nonprofit sector and the social political sector. The administration wanted to defund any nonprofit that engaged in political activity. Nan and many others sort of galvanized a group of nonprofit leaders to fight back against that. But the chilling effect was quite severe, where even today you meet a lot of nonprofit leaders who think that they can engage in I'm just going to call it politics writ large, but what I really mean is government sort of lobbying and engaging with politicians under certain circumstances. So we formed a program called Boulder Advocacy. And through Boulder Advocacy, what we do is we educate the nonprofit sector about how to be engaged in the political process to advance their aims. And our sole belief behind that is if you've got, for example, someone who's running a homeless shelter well, why should it be the case that that person who has intimate knowledge about the problem is unable to bring that knowledge to policymakers? And so we try to bridge that gap. The two programs come together now at this moment in the guise, how I described it earlier, of attempting to build power in the nonprofit sector, particularly among progressive nonprofits, connecting them and their communities to the organs of government and decision making. We continue to think about how to transform courts through that work. We interconnect those organizations and help them understand, as I had to learn, here's how your issue is connected to what the Supreme Court might be doing or your state Supreme Court might be doing. And here's how we need to transform those systems so that they enable the positive change that you're trying to make rather than disable it. And that's with the goal of securing justice for all. You, if you look at your website, you see scores of organizations that are part of the Alliance. Where does that list come from over time? It, it includes a lot of notable organizations and some 
less so and also doesn't include some that are out there. How do I understand the the group that is part of the alliance? Yeah. Well, it's historic. We started off with 20 organizations who joined NAN's vision to build a movement to counteract what was happening with the Reagan administration and our federal judiciary. As we built the Boulder Advocacy Program, we then had folks who were primarily interested in understanding how they could be more effective advocates, again, for their communities as nonprofits. And today, given that kind of unified mission, we have organizations that see both sides of needing to transform the courts and build power for themselves. So I would say it's a rather organic list without quite a rhyme or reason. We invite people to join at any point. The membership is quite reasonable. But the idea has become increasingly to be aligned with cohorts of folks who do something like what you do. So the environmental justice movement, the criminal legal reform movement, the immigration movement, bringing those groups in particular together so that we understand what their issues are and can be a better service to them through bolder advocacy, but also can inform them on their issues with regard to how the courts are ruling. It's developed some more form than it had over time, but essentially it's still as he used to say, Robin Hood and his band of merry men, <laughs> whoever comes along that you find in the forest, who's equally allied in trying to pursue justice for the country and, and shares that overall vision that they need to build power for themselves. They have some instinct to try and transform the courts again to enable their work and that they're focused on a broad swath of society. How does it fit into sort of a progressive ecosystem? There are other organizations like American Constitution Society or there's a lot of groups that are also focused on trying to to turn back the, the bad tide that has swept through the Supreme Court and other courts. Like, how, how does it fit in the Alliance for Justice? We're one of, one of many other groups doing this work. I would say I could go group by group and so just say how I think they fit into the ecosystem. But if you take the courts reform groups writ large, there's the American Constitution Society, People for the American Way has been there for a long time. The Leadership Conference has been there for a long time. More recently, Demand Justice, People's Parity Project, Take Back the Court. There are probably still less than 10 organizations that treat the court and the courts generally as their primary point of focus. The Brennan Center will get in the game soon. Each on the left is concerned with the federal society's takeover of the third branch of government. It's not total at every level. I mean, at the Supreme Court level, obviously it is, but it's not total at every level. Nevertheless, it's quite extensive. And because we so deeply disagree with their views on the Constitution, while not necessarily being unified on our own view of the Constitution, we find ourselves allied in common cause to try and do what we can to raise attention about what's happened and how it's affecting the lives of Americans. Like I said, we believe that the court was meant to enable democracy. And in so many ways, their view of the world seems to treat the court as not just a check on democracy, but a way of crippling it and limiting popular expression. I've had a couple people from some of those groups on this show who have been advocating to expand the court, Supreme Court, because of that view. And uh, feeling like we are really stuck for quite a while with this conservative majority. What do you think are the prospects for turning this around? And do you think we need substantial change solutions like that? Or we can 
do it by you know winning some some elections and nominating the right people and confirming them what do you think ultimately i think we are going to need some bold and radical solutions expanding the number of justices might be one term limits may be another limiting the jurisdiction of the court may be yet another with that said i always try to keep in mind that history and random quirks of circumstance have created the current court. It's not as though it was effortless. And so, you know, 500 votes in Florida in 2000 and things like that. Yeah. Correct. Right. If, if as everyone thought Hillary, Hillary Clinton becomes the president of the United States, you don't have a six, three conservative majority. You probably have a liberal majority for the first time and maybe a large liberal majority for the first time. And so, Our job as advocates are to tee up the solutions and set the circumstances so that when the time comes, we're ready to go. (laughs) And right now, I think that has the set of solutions I described, but it's also about pipeline work. It's about identifying the right kinds of folks who can be elevated to the federal judiciary, who we know share our views of the Constitution. That'll be important. There are any number of pieces that I could go into at great depth about how this all comes together. But Court expansion is just one of them, I think, one of the more difficult and radical solutions to what needs to be done, and yet totally appropriate given what we're confronting. What about for yourself? Like, it sounds like you're putting in place a structure where you don't have to stay as long as Nan Aaron in this. You probably could if you want to. Where do you want to take this organization? Where do you want to take yourself into the future? I don't know. (laughs) I wish that, I mean, in terms of myself, I don't know. In terms of the organization, as I said, right now I view myself a bit as a transitional ED, which I don't regard as being a bad thing. It is to move the organization from its founder to an enduring organization that attempts to meet its mission. If we meet our mission, then there won't be a need for us anymore. I'm very much a believer that nonprofit dollars are limited. And so when we've served our function and purpose, there won't be a need for us anymore. That likely won't happen anytime soon. So you might say enduring and permanent. I'd like to see us move there. That has meant us having a new strategic plan, which you've heard encapsulated and sort of this build power, transform court, secure justice for all, but has sort of six component parts to it for the next three years to help people better relate and understand the role that the courts play. I think my greatest contribution, our greatest contribution, the Alliance at this stage would be doing for courts what the ACA did for hospitals. When I was growing up, you did not go to a hospital unless you were sick. The ACA and the conversation around healthcare transformed hospitals to a place where I think the majority of Americans think this is a place where I go for preventative care. Somehow I have a relationship where it is positive to be in a hospital. I remind people that people do not like courts. No one has a positive association with a court except civil rights litigators from the 1950s and 60s. And so we have to reach a place where courts in our society hold a similar place to hospitals where folks think this is a place that I go in order to be made whole. Right. Of course, a bad thing may have happened to me. And that's the reason I have to show up there anyway. That's unfortunately a necessary part 
of how litigation occurs, but it's a place where people feel optimistic and hopeful about the future by virtue of their interactions with it. If courts are the extension of prisons and of jails, which I know some people talk about how you might reform a jail, but it's still going to be a jail. If it's that, then we will struggle to capture the popular imagination in a way that allows us to really achieve reform. But as I said, if they can be seen as being enabling of both my personal aspirations and my democratic aspirations, then I think it's possible to have a court system that we can be proud of in the end. I find myself wondering about elective office for you because you bring such a broad skill set and you're now getting so much experience in this space, in the progressive space. Have you thought about that? I used to before I knew any better. <laughs> I mean, you worked on that campaign, right? Yeah. <laughs> I used to before I knew any better. And now I think, I wouldn't say public service is out of question for me, but I don't know that it would be an elected role. I'm an introvert, actually. I value my privacy. And so the demands of even this job are sometimes difficult to meet by virtue of the amounts of exposure that they, it requires. I'm happy to do it because it's for a good cause. And maybe I'd feel the same way about elected office. But when I was working on that campaign, I preferred being the person who was managing it as opposed to the candidate. I, I get that. I'm kind of like that myself. But I think introverts bring something different to those kinds of offices that's often really needed which is typically listening rather than talking and thinking and doing the work rather than pretending to sometimes. The workhorse rather than the show horse is often the way people label it in politics. I would like to see more people who are less good at their social media presence and, and better at thinking about equitable policy you know, <laughs> out there. Yeah, I, I hear that. I, but I think that the demands, like being an executive director, right? There are fundraising demands. There are, yeah, that's all politics. Yeah, there are public appearance yeah. demands. Yeah, yeah it's, all, it's all politics. But I guess what I'm saying is that uh, back to my business school days, like there are different talents that relate themselves to these pieces. And I agree with you. I think there are opportunities for more introverts to be in government. And to be introverted, of course, doesn't mean that you don't enjoy people. I enjoy people plenty. Just in smaller dollops. Yeah, my, my reserve, my the way that I recharge is alone, and uh, so you know, it may be an opportunity will present itself that I can't can't resist, and I think that the contribution is great enough. But even then, I don't see myself as being someone who retires in the role. That's the important piece for me that I would come and do whatever service was necessary um, and useful, and then try to retreat back to my. My own Monticello, which is just my little home on Capitol Hill. What should I have asked you that I didn't? How uh, do I occupy my free time? And the answer is reading endless articles about the trades that the Knicks should make to be better. <laughs> You're a Nick fan, huh? I'm a Knicks fan. Uh, my, yeah. my dad grew up one, and I think it was a lot better in the early 70s. Right, right. See, he's like he's like those old, those old civil rights litigators. Right? <laughs> it's been a rough, long stretch for that team. It has. Yeah. It has. Have you thought about adopting the Wizards? I have you, not. You can, you can experience similar frustrations most of the time. No, what I no, no. What I tell people is the Knicks have taught me endurance, so I'm here for the long haul. <laughs> well, it's 
really a privilege to get a chance to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, this was fun. Thank you for taking all the time. Thank you as well. That was Rakeem Brooks. He's at AFJ.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.